Having fleshed out the issue of caring for the helpless in chapter 2, James tackles the next application of God's law in chapter 3, namely, taming the tongue. Tongue, glossa, as used by James, is not referring to the organ located in the mouth. Instead, the term tongue, glossa, from where we get our term glossary, refers to one's language or speech. The control of one's tongue or speech is a major theme of the Old Testament. Proverbs 13.3, the one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 17.27-28, he who restrains his word has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. Previously, James stated in chapter 1, verse 26, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. The term bridle means to govern, direct, or restrain. Kurt Richardson states that religion is the external observable qualities of a life of faith in Christ. And so I must ask the question, what does your speech, what does your language communicate about your life of faith? You see, just as Jesus judges one's faith based upon your deeds of compassion, so too he will judge your faith based upon your speech. Matthew 12, 37. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. If our faith is to be critiqued based upon our speech, what would it say? Would it tell us that our faith is dead? Would it tell us that our faith is demonic? Or would it tell us that our faith is dynamic? Whether or not we tame our tongues reveals whether our faith is worthless or genuine. And furthermore, James explains in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, that the tongue must be tamed because it dominates, it defiles, and it deceives. Let's begin in chapter 3 with verses 1 through 5, taming the tongue because the tongue dominates. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits in the horse's mouths so that we will, they will obey us, and we direct their entire bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. James again addresses his readers here as, My brethren, he's about to convey some difficult truths. That'll be a hard pill to swallow. And so James reminds them, that they're part of his family. And as such, though he has some difficult things to say to them, he wants to assure his readers that he writes to them out of love. 
He's lovingly telling them to tame their tongues because the tongue dominates. Notice that James first addresses teachers. The term teacher, didaskalos, used only here in the entire New Testament, refers to someone who instructs others as an occupation. Now, it may seem odd to address teachers amid an exhortation on the tongue. But we must consider that teaching involves the oral communication of information. And the teachers to whom James is addressing are those involved in the teaching or educational ministry of the church. The command, let not many of you become teachers, can be rendered this way. Do not force yourself into the role of teaching. Evidently, many believers in James' day were trying to be teachers without the necessary moral and theological qualifications. By placing untaught believers in a position of teaching, the potential of teaching false doctrine exponentially increases. Unfit teachers are often the cause of division and quarreling within the church. Therefore, it is of the utmost importance that those conscripted into the educational ministry of the church be equipped with the necessary tools to undertake the important task of teaching God's word. At the least, those who teach should be examined as to their doctrinal soundness and aptitude to communicate God's truth. Consider what it takes to be a school teacher. First, an individual spends three to five years, at the minimum, obtaining a degree in a particular field of education. Then, that individual must obtain classroom experience under the supervision of another licensed educator. And then finally, the individual must obtain a license or certification to teach. The license to teach can only be acquired after completing the necessary training and examination. Now, if there is such a rigorous standard for teaching the subjects of reading, writing, arithmetic, and such, which there should be, then why does the church not hold to some rigorous standards for those who teach God's word? Too often, churches are guilty of pushing people into a classroom that are ill-equipped to teach. And sadly, that is why such actions explain why Sunday school programs and children's church ministries have devolved into nothing more than organized babysitting services and entertainment venues. The teaching of Scripture is the primary duty of the church. And as such, it must be done well, and it must be done in a manner pleasing to God. James goes on to explain his reason for warning people not to engage in the teaching of Scripture before they are equipped. He says, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Notice here that James uses the personal pronoun we. He includes himself amongst those who teach. The verb will incur, lombano, meaning to experience, is in the future tense implying this judgment is future. Indeed, the judgment in view is the judgment seat of Christ. 
Judgment upon those who teach the word will be stricter or greater than others because it involves the teaching of God's word and the spiritual well-being of those who are taught. Luke 12, 48, For everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask more. James offers a second reason for his exhortation, for we all stumble in many ways. Again, James includes himself. We all stumble. The all shifts away from teachers and expands to all believers. The verb stumble, patao, means to miss a step or to trip over an obstacle. It's often used to describe a moral lapse or sin. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles, patao, in one point, has become guilty of all. 2 Peter 1 and verse 20, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about your calling and choosing. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble, patayo. That this verb, patayo, is in the present tense, implies that we repeatedly stumble into sin. Now, that we repeatedly stumble does not imply or say that we are in continuing in habitual sin. Instead, James is presenting a realistic view that all believers regularly struggle with sin. And the phrase in many ways, Paulus, demonstrates that sin manifests itself in different ways for different people. Particularly though, the sin of the tongue is at the top of that list. Now the Bible lists several sins of the tongue that we must forsake. There's the sin of gossip or babbling, Proverbs 10.10. 10. He who winks the eye causes trouble and a babbling fool will be ruined. A babbling fool is a gossiper, someone who chatters needlessly about things that are not their business. In 1 Timothy 5.13, Paul refers to them as busy buddies talking about things not proper to mention. There is the sin of bearing false witness, Exodus 20.16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. False witness is spreading untruths about someone. It includes slander, backbiting, insinuations, and any other falsehoods that would hurt the reputation of someone. There's the sin of grumbling, Philippians 2.14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Grumbling refers to complaining or, fi or, or fault finding, finding fault with something, motivated by a bad attitude or discontentment over a situation. Then there's the sin of lying. Proverbs 6, 16 to 17. There are six things which the Lord hates, yea, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. Now lying's not just telling an untruth. It includes breaking promises, making empty promises, and not following through on commitments. And then there's the sin of indecent speech. Ephesians 5.4 There must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Words that are indecent includes words that are filthy or obscene, silly or rash, and coarse jesting or double entendres and innuendos. Then there's the sin of boasting, James 4.16. But as it is you, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. See, boasting overestimates your own importance and while underestimating the importance of others. If we would be honest, we would have to admit that we have sinned 
all sinned in one of these areas, if not more. James continues by saying, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. It's a first-class conditional clause which assumes the statement to be true. James is not putting forth a possibility, but a fact. The believer who does not stumble or sin in what he says, i.e. his speech, is perfect. The term perfect, teleos, does not refer to sinlessness, but spiritual maturity. In other words, your speech speaks volumes about your spiritual maturity. Failure to tame the tongue implies that you are spiritually immature. So take stock. Examine your life. Examine your speech. Your degree of spiritual maturity is directly tied to what comes out of your mouth. So what does that say about you before a holy God? As well, the believer who is able to control their tongue is able to bridle the whole body. The term bridle, chalanagogeo, means to govern, direct, or to keep in check. A bridle, along with a bit, is used to control and direct a horse. In James 1.26, the bridle was used as a picture for controlling the tongue. Now it typifies controlling one's body or life. When you exhibit self-control over your mouth, over your lips, over your tongue over what you say, you will exhibit self-control over your life. My friend, if you cannot control your tongue, you are not spiritually mature, and therefore you are not qualified to teach God's Word. Now, though teachers may stumble or sin in their speech, they should not be known for continually or habitually stumbling in their speech. That a believer's way of life follows what comes forth from his or her mouth underscores the dominating nature of one's speech. If there's any doubt of the tongue's dominating nature, James puts forth three examples. The bit in a horse's mouth, the rudder on a ship, and the spark behind a forest fire. These three examples form the tenth triad in James' epistle. Interestingly, Philo, the Jewish historian, used these same three examples to describe the mastering of one's mind. In James' first example, he explains how we put the bits into the horses' mouths so that they will obey us. Bits and horses were common illustrations in the ancient world. Sophocles, a 5th century B.C. writer, said, I have witnessed horses with a great spirit disciplined by a small bit. You see, just as the small bit controls the direction of the horse, so believers' small mouths direct their entire body as well. Believer, if you can tame your tongue, you can direct the course of your life. But where your tongue is untamed, so too your life will be untamed. In the second example, James asks believers to look at the ships. The term look, edu, is used six times in this third chapter. It conveys the idea of pay attention. In case anyone missed the first example, pay close attention to this second example. Ships are so great and driven by strong wind. 
The term strong, scleros, refers to gale force winds. Though these large ships are subject to the forces of nature, they are nonetheless still directed by a very small rudder at the inclination of the pilot. And just as a small rudder controls a large ship, so your lips direct your life. In his third example, James asks believers to consider how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. The term see, adieu, is that same term translated as look in verse 2. Pay attention. The small, helikos, is a term that expresses magnitude, either extremely great or extremely small. Here it describes an extremely small fire, hence a spark. A forest fire begins with one spark of fire. Hundreds of thousands of acres are destroyed because of one little spark that so often was carelessly overlooked. And James' point is, in this third example... It is that just as an uncontrolled spark causes much destruction, so an uncontrolled word can cause much destruction. The bit, the rudder, and the spark. Small compared to the horse, the ship, and the forest fire. You see, behind many big things are small things driving or controlling them. Like the bit, the rudder, and the spark, the tongue is a small part of the body. Nevertheless, that small tongue boasts of great things. The verb boast, okeo, refers to arrogance and presumptuousness before God. James later warns in chapter 4 and verse 16, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Evil lips equal an evil life. And so beware of your speech. Beware of your words. Words are not neutral. They are powerful. They are dominating. And what comes out of your mouth demonstrates what controls your life. Believers, we must tame our tongues not only because the tongue dominates, but because the tongue defiles. James chapter 3, verses 6 to 8. The tongue is a fire the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members, and as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life, and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Again, we must... Tame our tongue because the tongue defiles. Again, James states the tongue is a fire. He's alluding to Proverbs 16, 27. A worthless man digs up evil while his words are like scorching fire. By restating the metaphor, James drives home the point that the tongue is evil. The phrase the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity, is a difficult uh, phrase to translate. The term world, cosmos, refers to the world system under Satan's control. Iniquity, adikia, means to commit injustice and refers to a failure to adhere to God's law. Now the Syriac Peshitta, a 2nd century A.D. Syrian translation, renders the phrase, the tongue also is a fire, the sinful world is wood. 
In other words, the world of iniquity, the satanic system of lawlessness, is the fuel that flames the fires of an evil tongue. And having determined the meaning of the first phrase, consideration must now be given to the next phrase, the tongue is set among our members. The verb is set, kathisteme, means to be appointed. Members, malas, is used metaphorically to refer to the parts of the body. Though the tongue is a small member of the body, its effects are great. And James uses three participles to explain the evil of the tongue. It defiles the entire body, it sets on fire the course of life, and it is set on fire by hell. These three participles form the eleventh triad of the epistle of James. First, the tongue is evil because it defiles the entire body. The participle defiles, spalao, refers to something which is soiled or discolored a garment. James is saying here that the tongue is appointed among the parts of the body to stain or soil the whole body. Fueled by the satanic system of lawlessness, it defiles or pollutes the entire person. As Jesus said in Matthew 15, 11, it is not what enters the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. As such, someone with an untamed or uncontrolled tongue has a religion that is worthless and has deceived themselves into thinking their faith is dynamic. James 1.26 If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, he has deceived his own heart. This man's religion is worthless. Second, the tongue is evil because it sets on fire the course of our life. The participle sets on fire Flagizo means to kindle. The term course, trakas, generally refers to a wheel or a cycle. Metaphorically, it refers to the cycle of life or the wheel of existence. It is a Hebraism to describe the ups and downs of life. Hence, the tongue not only corrupts the whole person, but it also kindles evil throughout one's life. And third... The tongue is evil because it, it is set on fire by hell. Again, the participle is set on fire. Philogizo means to be kindled. The term hell, Gehenna, is the Grecianized form of the Hebrew term Ge-Ben-Hinnom, meaning the valley of the son of Hinnom. Located south of Jerusalem, the valley of the son of Hinnom was initially a place associated with child sacrifice. 2 Kings 23.10 He also defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, Ge-Ben-Hinnom, that no man might make his son or daughter pass through the fire for Molech. Later, the valley became the city dump, where dead animals and trash were burned continuously. And Jeremiah used the valley as a symbol for judgment. Jeremiah 7.31-32 they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will no longer be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of the slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth, because there is no other place. In several Jewish writings of the intertestamental era, the valley of Hinnom became representative of the place of judgment filled with fire and worms. While these writings are not inspired, they do serve as the legitimate historical documents 
which provide an understanding on the beliefs and cultures of the Jewish people in the time leading up to the first advent of the Messiah. Thus, in Jesus' day, Gehenna was still a maggot-infested, ever-burning garbage heap. But Jesus, using its association with fiery judgment, depicted the place, the final place of judgment as Gehenna. However, he was not referring to hell. Hell is a place where the unrighteous await their final judgment at the great white throne. Gehenna is the lake of fire, the final destination of the unrighteous, as well as Satan and his demonic horde. James' statement that the tongue is set on fire by hell can then be rendered as kindled by the lake of fire. Since the lake of fire is the destination of Satan and his demons, James uses the term as a personification of demonic forces. His point is that evil or corrupt speech is empowered by Satan. Having provided three reasons for why the tongue is evil, James again reminds his readers, he reminds us of the difficulty of taming the tongue in verses 7 and 8. He begins with an illustration from the animal kingdom. He states that every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. He alludes to Genesis 9-2, The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hands they are given. Now the term species, phusis, can be translated as kinds and refers to things grouped according to their nature. James lists four kinds of groups or creatures. First, there are the beasts, or creatures that walk. Second, there are the birds, or creatures that fly. Third, there are those creatures that creep on the ground, that is, they crawl or slither. And fourth, there are creatures of the sea, or animals that swim. Now the verb tamed, damazo, does not mean to domesticate, but to subjugate. As God commanded Adam in Genesis 1.28, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The perfect tense of has been tamed by the human race implies that humanity's domination of animals is proven historically. And by the way, the term race, phusis, as in human race, is the same term translated species. And James is employing wordplay here to convey the idea that the human nature is superior to the nature of animals. While humanity is capable of subduing the animal kingdom, no one can tame the tongue. The verb can, dunamai, means able and is a present tense denoting the continual inability of anyone to control their speech. The only means by which you and I can tame our tongue is by submitting our words and our thoughts, the words of our mouths and the thoughts of our hearts, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm nineteen fourteen. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Take an honest evaluation. Are your words acceptable before the Lord Jesus? Take it a step further. Are your thoughts acceptable to the Lord Jesus? What would he think about your words and your thoughts? See, my friends, your words or your thoughts reveal the worthlessness or genuineness of your faith. James goes on to provide three reasons why we cannot tame our tongue on our own. 
The tongue is restless, the tongue is evil, and the tongue is full of deadly poison. Restless, evil, and full are each attributive adjectives described in the tongue. These three reasons provide the twelfth triad in James' epistle. First, the tongue is untamable because it is restless. That the tongue is restless, atakastatas, implies that it's unstable and unruly. Second, the tongue is evil, therefore it's untamable. Evil, kakas, describes the tongue as morally reprehensible. And third, the tongue is untamable because it is full of deadly poison. The term full, nestos, describes the tongue as being totally or completely filled with something. And that something is deadly poison. Deadly thanatophoros is death-bringing or death-dealing. Poison is specifically venom. Hence, the tongue is filled with death-dealing venom. In other words, the tongue is untamable like a deadly serpent. Which James is alluding to Psalm 140, verse 3. They sharpen their tongues as serpent. Poison of a viper is under their lips. So believers, we must tame our tongues not only because it dominates and defiles, but also because the tongue deceives. Taming the tongue because the tongue deceives. Chapter 3, verse 9 to 12. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Again, my friends, we must tame the tongue because the tongue deceives. It deceives by saying two opposing things. He says, James says, that from the same mouth, believers bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men. Now the verb bless, eulogio, means to extol or praise. Blessing or praising God is a fundamental part of Jewish worship that carried over into the church. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Ephesians 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In particular, we are praising God as our Lord and Father. That God is our Lord emphasizes His authority and sovereignty over our lives. That God is our Father highlights His love and compassion for us as His children. Thus, we are to praise God for His sovereignty and love. However, while praising God, believers are also cursing others. The verb curse, katarotomai, is to wish ill will upon someone. Wishing ill will includes thinking or saying, I wish so-and-so would die, I hate so-and-so, or so-and-so is a bleep. Many see no problem with blessing God and wishing ill will upon others. After all, God has blessed them, but that certain so-and-so hurt them or has done evil to them. 
Indeed, it's easy to rationalize such an attitude, isn't it? However, Jesus states in Luke 6, 28, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Therefore, if we curse those who curse us or mistreat us, we're violating the command of Jesus. And what is truly damnable about cursing people or wishing them ill will is that all people are made in the likeness of God. James adapts a rabbinic teaching from Bereshit Rabbah 24. It states this. This is a great principle of the Torah. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18 Meaning that one should not say, Since I am scorned, I should scorn my fellow as well. Since I have been cursed, I will curse my fellow as well. If you do this, know that God made the person you put to shame in his own image. That verb made, ginomai, is in the perfect tense, indicating that the likeness of God that was evident in creation is still present in humanity. Though the likeness of God in humanity was marred by sin, sin did not destroy that image. The likeness, homeoiosis, infers that humanity bears, still bears some resemblance to God. You see, just as God is, ra- is a rational moral being, so people are rational and moral beings. That humanity still bears resemblance to God means that when we wish others ill will or refer to them with derogatory expletives, we have ultimately cursed God. How many of us are guilty of cursing God because we curse someone that hurt us? Again, by addressing his readers as my brethren, James is confirming his love for them. Though he loves them, these things ought not to be. In other words, cursing others should not happen. Furthermore, the verb ought not to, ukre, means that it is incorrect or immoral. Hence, James' point is that not only should cursing or wishing other will, others ill will not happen, but that it is immoral to do so. James now provides three illustrations to drive home the deceptiveness of the tongue. A fountain spewing both fresh and bitter water, a fig tree producing olives, and a grapevine producing figs. These three illustrations are the 13th triad of James' epistle. These illustrations are presented as rhetorical questions demanding a negative response. And all three illustrations emphasize the absurdity of one thing producing another thing of a different kind. In the first illustration, James asks, does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? He answers the question at the end of of verse 12. He says, nor can salt water produce fresh. See, the people of the ancient Near East were extremely dependent upon fountain or springs to provide them with fresh potable water. Bitter, picros, denotes water that is brackish. Brackish or salty water is bitter. James alludes to Psalm 64, verse 3, who have sharpened their tongues like a sword, they aim their bitter speech as their arrow. As previously stated, the tongue is full of deadly poison. Fresh water does not produce salt water, nor can salt water produce fresh. 
And so James' point is that it is impossible for the same spring to produce both fresh and brackish water. And so the same mouth cannot bless or praise God and then curse others. The second and third illustration are asked in the question, Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Again, the answer is no. Fig trees do not produce olives, nor do grapevines produce figs. Figs producing olives or grapes producing figs is unnatural. Nature cannot produce something unnatural. Therefore, it is just as unnatural for you to pronounce a blessing or praise upon God while utterly cursing others. James draws these final two illustrations from Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 16. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? In the context of Matthew 7, Jesus tells his disciples that they can determine whether a believer is genuine or counterfeit by the fruit they produce, by what comes out of their mouth. And what comes out of your mouth will determine whether you are genuine or false. Pronouncing blessings and curses from the same mouth is a case of being double-tongued and as such is deceptive. Maybe you're deceiving yourself or maybe you're deceiving others, but nonetheless it's deceptive. And my friend, you would do well to repent of such deception lest your religion or your faith be shown to be worthless and it proven to being dead or demonic. See, my friends, words have the power to dominate, defile, and deceive. I challenge you to remember that what proceeds out of your mouth is a measure of your spiritual maturity. If gossip, slander, complaints, lies, indecent words, and boasts come forth from your mouth, you must immediately repent and forsake of such sins. Remember Jesus said that what proceeds out of your mouth is evidence of what's in your heart. Give serious consideration as to how you measure up spiritually compared to what comes out of your mouth. Therefore, believers, we need to tame our tongue with God's help. In Colossians 2, 6, Paul exhorts us that our speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that we, you will know how you should respond to each person. Furthermore, we are admonished in Ephesians four twenty nine to let no unwholesome word proceed from our mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. I challenge you, before speaking, or before making that next post on social media, ask whether it's good. Ask if it's edifying. Ask if it's timely. Ask if it's graceful. Tame your tongue. Father in heaven, I thank you for this difficult challenge to tame the tongue. We confess, Father, that we cannot tame it on our own. We need your help. We must bring every word and every thought captive to the Lord Jesus. We must make sure that our words and our thoughts are acceptable in His sight and yours. And so, Father, help us to examine. Help us to be slow to speak. Help us to consider what we have to say before we say it. Help us to understand and to think about the, the, the ramifications that what comes out of our mouths reveals our spiritual maturity. As well, it reveals whether or not we're truly saved. So help us, Father. As we're listening, if we're thinking of any area that 
you've, your spirit has brought to our mind where our speech is untamed, where our speech is evil, where it's uncontrolled. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to repent and forsake it. That Lord, we would get rid of that which defiles and that which deceives. Father, we confess that it is dominating. It, it, it is so easy to control our lives. And so, Father, help us to let you control our lives. And in doing so, tame our tongue. We pray this in your son's matchless name. Amen.